this is the podcast for you if you are a surveyor and you're a fan of The Matrix. If you listen to this podcast, you'll find out why. Welcome to The Surveyor Hub, my friend, with me, Marion Ellis. So on today's podcast, we're having a chat about regulation with Richard White, Charlie Jackson and Sarah Cantrell from RICS Regulation. So welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to have you here. And this is a bit of a a weird podcast for me in many ways. Firstly, I'm about to have a freezer delivered. So whilst I'm recording this, there's likely to be some noise uh, going past. So apologies if that does happen because sod's law uh, and all that. Secondly, it's really weird because Richard used to be my boss many years ago, didn't you? I did, yes. Going back a few years now, but goodness. <laughs> I know. And when you when you when you just came on and I said, Hello Marion, it brought back fifteen years worth of I was gonna say it must be about boss. yeah, it must must be that long ago, wasn't it? Two thousand and five ish or something. I don't know when you joined, but yeah. yeah. So I'll try to ignore the fact that you're my boss as we <laughs> as we go through. Used to be my boss as we as we go through. Used this. to be, used to be. Yeah. But let's have just a, a little bit of an intro as to you know who you are and your careers, and and let's start with you, Richard, because you're a charter surveyor, aren't you? Yeah. So charter surveyor in the uh, profession support and assurance team in RICS. I've been with RICS now about um, about four years. Um, Quite a lot of my career has been with lending institutions, so spells with national home loans on sort of buy-to-let lending and Alliance and Leicester, where I was for about eight years, and nationwide commercial then doing doing commercial lending with a with a period at Countrywide Surveyors in in the middle of all of that, and uh, sort of started out in uh, smaller private practice firms actually, um, which is where I qualified and. Um, current role at RICS within that profession and uh, support and assurance team is to um, really support and firms and members and provide them with guidance to help them come into compliance with the requirements of Red Book. And we do that through, you know, review visits, workshops uh, and various other forms of training and advice, really. And you've always struck me as a guy who likes a sense of order and a sense of calm. That's certainly an element of that. Yeah, <laughs> and that's quite a good, uh, I suppose that's... Um, useful when you're doing this uh doing this sort of role actually when you're uh, liaising with uh with people so yeah it does it does sort of help i guess <laughs> i'm making you squirm now which is great so um and then we've also got sarah and charlie hello to you both tell us a bit about your roles in the team hi mommy and i'll go first charlie if that's okay so i'm sarah cantrell and my title is regulated firms account manager i have been at rics since 2002. So I've had more than 19 years experience at RICS. I actually started in the contact centre, which gave me a fantastic opportunity to learn as much as possible about what surveyors do and also the work of RICS. And then moved into the compliance side and have had a number of different roles since then. I've worked as a regulatory technical specialist. Um, I know that you've already done a podcast on the investigation team. I've worked um, as an investigation manager in the past, but my current role is supporting our regulated firms and members with the implementation of our rules and best practice. Super. And Charlie? And I'm Charlie Jackson. Hello. I am also, like Richard, a chartered surveyor and a registered valuer. And I've been at RICS for five and a half years And until last December, when we had the reorganisation, I had been doing what Richard is doing in the UK. And now my focus is no longer the UK and Ireland. I'm now Europe, but doing the same thing as the team, well, the teams all over the world. But, you know, Richard being in the UK, same as Richard. And before I came to RICS, I've worked in the private sector and the public sector. The private sector have always been corporates. I've I've never worked for smaller firms, always the large corporates. And I was a specialist healthcare valuer. So the commercial side is more my bag. But of course, our standards are global standards that apply to all types of asset. So um, it's not... At first, I thought when I first joined, I thought, 
you know, I'm going to be completely out of my depth because the majority of our members are actually residential rather than commercial. And I thought, you know, that they're going to catch me out that I don't know what I'm talking about with residential. But actually, it, it doesn't matter because the rules apply equally, whichever side you're on. So, yes, but before that, I was in finance and before that I was in law. So I came quite late to surveying. You know, I think I didn't do my APC until I was 29 or something before I discovered the delights. And now I'm wondering why I didn't find it so much sooner. So, uh, yeah, here I am, moved over to the dark side and have been in regulation five and a half years. Do you know what? There's so many things I could ask you about your your career. Firstly, when you said uh, healthcare, what do you mean by by that? Is that hospitals and... The primary healthcare stuff was minimal, but it was mainly the social care stuff. So nursing homes, learning disability homes, you know, residential care homes. And then I did GP surgeries and I did dental practices, but actually hospitals, although other people on my team did hospitals, we had hospital specialists. So actually, no, I didn't do hospitals, but the trading care home valuations was my speciality. And this is one of the things about surveyors and the, the work that we do. Is there are so many different types of buildings. You know, there's so many different, you know, and I, you know, I, I'm a resi valuer at heart, you know, but I come across a lot of surveyors, particularly in the survey hub community, who would call themselves commercial, but they dabble in residential because you have, you know, a shop or a dentist surgery or whatever with a flat above it, you know, and you need to know, uh, have a good understanding um, of both. And it's interesting as well, you said, um, paraphrase, you know, just about being found out, you know, because you do <laughs> when they find you out. And I think a lot of us suffer from that, actually, in this sort of, I mean, sort of not quite imposter syndrome, but we all we all get that. But we're we're, we're tra- so highly trained to do one thing, usually, that when we start to broaden the work that we do, that we, yes, we can go on training courses and things like that, but most of it is just experience. Yeah, work experience and so you know, a lot and- of transferable skill sets. You know, within surveying, it's as because it's such a broad church. You know, when you're going through that initial training period, you're learning things that I think you don't realise you're learning. You know, how to handle evidence, of course, is very important for us in regulation. But it's what valuers do every day of the week. You know, it's it's how they value. And I think you don't always realise how very transferable those skills you've learned in surveying are. The third reason, this is, I guess, is a bit of a poignant chat together, is that originally when we'd put this, or I'd persuaded you <laughs> to go on the podcast, is we were going to have a chat with Peter Dixon as well. And as we record this, unfortunately, Peter passed away recently. And I know this is very raw for all of you. A lot of listeners will have known Peter or know his work. and and uh, But perhaps, Mr. Richard, you could tell us a little bit about him and why he was so passionate about what he did. Yeah, he was just um, he he was just someone who wanted. I I, I think. I mean, I, I haven't known him perhaps as as well as, or as long as Charlie, but he, he he just always seemed to be someone who wanted to help others. And I and I think his his passion therefore was to yeah to really help people come into compliance through through whatever means that might be. But and, and he was he was a great one for for talking to people and helping them through and reciting uh, stories and examples and and really bringing I, I suppose bringing regulation to life, which is which is I think one of, was one of his real uh, real real strengths and and bringing it into the into the real world. I think I, I think would you kind of agree with that? Charlie, he sort of really brought yeah. he, he brought it to life, didn't he? I think he really did, and he understood. I mean, he was somebody like all of us. I think in regulation, we like to have a structure and a framework, mm. and you know, we like rules, and you know, we we like the the well, I suppose the safety that comes with a framework, and and actually, Peter was a very religious man, and you know, all the the structure. That I suppose Christian teachings gave to him, he brought, you know, to mm. his role in regulation. And and actually he used analogies from, I mean, not his own religion necessarily, but he would talk about the five pillars of valuation, rather like the five pillars of Islam, with the five pillars being the things, the five things that are the most important to include in your terms of engagement, for example. You know, those were the five pillars of valuation. So he also understood that people 
absorb information and understand concepts in different ways. Not everybody learns in the same way. Not everybody thinks in the same way. And he was very good at finding different ways to explain to valuers when we went out to see firms, you know, and do these regulatory reviews. In the feedback, he was good at finding different ways to get the message across, to make it clear to the valuers what compliance should look like in practical terms. Because we have some members who will read Redbook and absolutely get what it's supposed to look like within their files and other valuers that don't get it. I mean, it's there are lots of vague paragraphs in Redbook for a reason. You know, it's it's a global set of standards and you can't therefore be too prescriptive. And Peter was very good at looking at a firm and going, right, well, this is where you're based. This is the kind of work you do. This is the kind of client base you have. Therefore, this is how compliance should look in your particular files for your particular type of work. So he's going to leave a really, really big hole in our team. But I mean, he trained most of us on the team. And so we all still do it and will continue to do it in the Peter Dixon way. And, you know, lots of our training materials were put together by Peter. And so, you know, valuers out there, valuers that he's never met, you know, will continue to be doing things the Peter Dixon way. And there's something very comforting about that. You know, he's, his legacy is going to live on because of the good work he's done in the 10 years he was with us at RICS. It is. And he always stressed, didn't he, why why it was so important to comply. It wasn't just, it wasn't just, oh yeah, you need to comply because you need to comply. He would he would recite, you know, tales of, well, you know, if you found yourself in the witness box, for example, what would you think if a judge said this to you? You know, and he, so he brought it, he was very, very keen on bringing it to life with those stories and examples, wasn't he, as to why it was important, and not just a tick box exercise. It actually matters and it's important for you to help you manage risk and be the best you can be. And I think that that's, yeah, he was very good at that, wasn't he? And you said it there, leaving a legacy. Mm. And, you know, as surveyors... That's what we do. The work that we do, whether it's in shuffling pieces of paper around to actually going on site, it's having a massive impact on the built environment, the way that we work, and that has an impact on people's lives. And so it's lovely to hear that, how you describe Peter there. I think that's that's lovely. But so many surveyors do the same work and they don't always value or appreciate the impact that they have on others, you know, within our within our profession and then also within the work that we do with um, with communities. It's and such an influential that, profession, isn't it? That's yeah, the thing. It does yeah. have a massive influence across so many sectors and so many areas of, uh, of society, really. And, and I always, when I'm giving my analogies on things or trying to make head to tail of, of what's going on, I always think about, you know, a surveyor on a wet Tuesday in Margate, you know, doing a, a survey. I, I went to Margate once and I don't know why. It was very I had fish and chips on the on the pier and uh, it was very impressionable. I don't know a surveyor in Margate. I always ask for a surveyor to get in touch and to tell me. But I I always think, you know, of that that one person working on their own, might be doing a, you know, a their own survey, not have much of a of a connection and might not be feeling as understanding the impact that they're having. And so to join the dots between what goes on on a global level. And I know the work that Peter did in particular, he did a lot globally, you know, and I've, I've heard of, of the work that he's done. You know, I had um, one of the governing council members talk about the work that he was doing in Singapore, I think it was, you know, and, and what he'd set up there and the impact and difference it made. You know, but sort of looking at, well, how do we join the gap or, you know, the dotted line between the surveyor on a wet Tuesday and Margate and what goes on globally and how do you make it relevant and that's a a big ask but there's always something that will resonate and I think the impact that we have is absolutely key so let's have a talk about what regulation is and the reason I I sort of reached out to you I mean I've been doing a few of these chats with people at RICS because I think it's fascinating what you do and the way that people work but also you know on the back of you know we've had the Levitt report out as we record this it's been out for a couple of months and in surveyors minds it's very much well there's one rule for surveyors and there's one rule for what goes on at the RICS and then we've got the outcome of the recommendations of the Leverett report which you know the, the governing council and the steering group that's been set up will will take that forward but what came out of the Levitt report 
was there was no criticism in terms of regulation and regulation for surveyors. It was purely operationally as a business RICS. There are some things here that don't quite add up or aren't working as well as they could. So it wasn't about actually individual surveyors uh, and, and their businesses, which is really reassuring. But it has put a focus a bit more on, okay, well, how are surveyors regulated and what is the point of, of regulation? So I was delighted when I found out that, oh, I know Richard. I'll persuade him and others to come on a chat with me. And he's smiling now. And, you know, to find out a bit more uh, about it. So for, and let's assume, you know, there'll be, there'll be lots, we'll get a lot of students listening to this podcast and, and trainees who don't fully understand yet what regulation is about. Well, I suppose regulation starts from the moment you decide to sign up to being part of RICS. You know, you're signing up to the fact that you want to work to the standards, you want to behave in accordance with the standards. And by signing up to RICS, you're allowing us to verify that commitment and to verify and give that confidence to the public that those standards are embedded in in everyday working life. So does that mean they apply when you're a trainee or student or is it when you qualify as an associate member or, or member? The rules of conduct for members applies from the moment you sign up as a, a student. You're already signing up to the behaviours that are expected. If you register your firm for regulation, then that is when the rules of conduct for firms would apply to you. So there's two rules of effectively sets there's a rules of conduct for members but then also rules of conduct for regulated firms and we can put a link to because uh, as we record this today the rules of conduct have been updated and i know rics has been running some webinars that people can can sign up to so we'll put links to that uh, in the show notes for people who who need to catch up so but tell me a bit more about how how regulation actually works then charlie i think i mean just you know listening to sarah and, and thinking about, you know, people are signing up to these rules of conduct and the standards and all the rest of it. I think, I mean, at the risk of upsetting our membership team, RICS membership is not going to be for everyone. You know, there is no requirement in the UK or indeed anywhere else to be regulated by RICS. So you can operate as a surveyor. You won't be a chartered surveyor, but you can operate as a surveyor and make a living and you don't have to follow any of these rules you know and we won't be watching you it's supposed to be the gold standard you know we are the creme de la creme and so it's difficult to get in you know doing your APC is a nightmare (laughs) you know frankly (laughs) it is two years of weekends and evenings that you have given up that you will never give back you know you'll never get back and it'll it makes you better than people who haven't been through that initiation of fire. We have high standards in terms of our conduct. We have high behavioural standards. We have ethical standards. And if you become a valuer, we have an even higher set of valuation standards. It's why the valuer registration scheme was introduced to elevate those people above everybody else in the field of valuation. So, and we are watching you. I mean, that's the thing about regulation. We're watching. Our members have to submit an annual return every year which I always imagined before I joined RICS, I thought you sent that off and it went into the ether somewhere. Nobody read it. Maybe they were spot checked, but every single one is looked at in detail. And I'd never appreciated that. So even when we're not coming out and visiting you, we are watching you. And although our directorate is the profession and its regulation and standards will fall under that same directorate, Standards and regulation are two sides of the same coin. And we don't, one doesn't influence the other. So if you look in Red Book, for example, if you're a valuer, it's a set of standards and the regulatory aspect of that doesn't appear because it's a set of standards, you know, and they're separate. So if you want to be a very professional person and give your client confidence that you're going to be doing the right thing and also that safety net where if the client has a concern they've got RICS to come to then you know RICS is for you but if you want an easy life and you don't want anybody to watch you and you know you want to be able to sweep your mistakes under the carpet then this membership is not for you frankly 
But the standards themselves would be meaningless without the regulation that goes with them. You know, I mean, to, I mean, to a large degree, we do trust our, I mean, these are professional people who have jumped through a lot of hoops to become our members. So we do trust them in the main that they're doing the right thing. And if they make a declaration to us, we'll believe them unless we find some evidence to the contrary. So we're not on them all the time going, we demand that you justify yourself at all times. But in order for those standards to be meaningful out there in the world, it does need that element of regulation, you know, that someone will pick up if something is going wrong. Give an example of what you mean by sta- a standard and a regulation. I suppose the standard is the rule, basically. That, that's what they are. They are rules. And we have a team of char- also chartered surveyors, actually, and committees, working parties, experts that sit together and make the rules based on the way they know the market operates. And of course, a global rule is more difficult to write because the markets and the countries are so different. So they take a lot. It's why some things get updated more often than others, because when you've got a country rule, unless something major happens in that particular country, that rule isn't going to change. Nothing's really going to happen to affect the way you need to comply in that particular area. But the global standards, I mean, I'm sure valuers listening will notice that, you know, every couple of years, Red Book gets updated. And it's because, you know, we follow the IVS, you know, they we follow where they lead more or less, although there are some differences between Red Book and the IVS. But it's because we've got the whole world to take into account, you know, with changes going on. So that's the rule. And then the regulatory framework sits in a different department. And that is up to us as the regulator, how we're going to make sure that those rules are being adhered to. And I mean, the world is full of regulators very similar to our ICS. And, you know, some of them do it in the same way we do it. And some of them do it in a quite different way from the way we do it. So the regulation team has to devise a strategy to make sure that A, our members are following our rules, but B, we're also upholding the spirit of the Royal Charter, you know, for the public advantage. So we won't make a rule for the sake of having a rule and we won't have regulation in place just for the sake of being able to come and, you know, peep into your files. It has all got to have that public advantage aspect to it. So, and by extension, of course, by protecting the public, we also protect our members because, you know, if the public isn't criticising them, then everybody's happy. So, so I guess the standard is what needs to be done and, and how it's done, and the the rules and the the regulation is the the way that you do it. And I guess it's the, the well, the regulation is yeah, yes, that's right, and it's the way we check that you're doing it, and mm. and all of that then offers reassurance to clients, to markets, from individual house buyers in Margate all the way through to. <laughs> global organisations that offers them that reassurance. Absolutely, because, of course, valuations, and obviously we're dealing with the valuer registration scheme and the, and the Red Book are the um, standards that we're, we're sort of working to and we're, we're judging uh, surveyors on. And, and, of course, valuations have uh, such an impact worldwide uh, used for, you know, things like lending and financial reporting. And so, so they are they are very, very significant. And so we have to make sure, I guess, through our regulatory programme that uh, members are adhering to those standards laid down in the in the Red Book. And as Charlie said, we do that. We, we, we have a, you know, we have a, a, a way in which we look at firms and review firms to make sure that they are adhering to those standards. And help them if they're not, because of course, Absolutely. Yeah. you know, it's it's not always the easiest set of rules to follow, particularly if you're on your own. You know, and the majority of our firms are sole practitioners and they've got all those other things to worry about, all those things that go with running a business. Yeah. You know, the, the valuation rules are just one part of a lot of rules that they've got to follow. So they don't have a compliance department to fall back on like the big firms do and they have to take responsibility for it themselves. And sometimes they need a helping hand. You know, sometimes they'll look at Red Book and go, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do in practice here. So, and as, you know, we we touched upon earlier, because your contact 
with regulation is quite minimal throughout your life, in, unless you do something awful, of course, in which case <laughs> we're talking to you all the time. It, that a fear builds up. You know, it's that fear of the unknown because we're not a bunch of dragons in regulation that will come and kick your door in. You know, we're we're well, not is, like that. Yeah, this is something I wanted to, I wanted to pick up on because you've said the word we're watching you. Yeah, you know, and and you're seen as the the police, if you like, and and. And and I and I recognise this from you know when I used to work with Richard and I did a audit uh, role and then uh, you know my background is in complaints and, and claims, and you know you do have to have that watching for the errors where things go wrong where people aren't following the rules, but then equally we've got to set people up for success. That's right. And where mm. you have the most support, you have the most success, and nobody goes out to do a bad job. No. You know, and when rules are so complicated, when there's so many of them, it's mm. easy to fall foul. And if you think about a surveyor who wakes up in the morning, leaves the house to go and do work, you know, particularly if they work for themselves, the rules that they have, you know, they've got to know there are the rules to how to drive on the road and make sure they've got their car sorted and their their MOT. You know, they might go into an office, they might have employees as employment law, you know, all the HR requirements, you know, health and safety all of those things you've then got you go out to see your clients you've got terms of engagement you know you've got rules that you have to follow consumer rules as well as then the rules that we do and there are literally rules everywhere and sometimes I imagine it oh, it's me going off on a random tangent now but have you ever seen the film mate the matrix yes yeah and and at the end where he gets his superpower and he can just see all of these like letters and words and numbers around him and he is like I, I have I have the power like he can understand them and I sometimes <laughs> sometimes think that's what it's like being a surveyor there are so many rules and regulations and what you do and and how do you how do you navigate that and so what what's really important is to make sure that they've that surveyors are set up for success and then they know where to find the information how to navigate it um what kind of support is there for surveyors on that well, I mean, I, I, I suppose um, if I talk sort of briefly through some of the things that we do um, in in the in the team, perhaps if I concentrate on, um, I mean, one of our one of the things that we're doing more of at the moment are what what are called member support visits, where we where we um, and at the moment we're not doing them on site because of because of COVID, so we're doing them all remotely. So we are. You know, engaging with firms, looking at their controls and procedures, and a, a sample report, and then once we've had a look at those and had a convers initial conversation with the firm um, to talk through their processes and controls and a bit about their business, we sort of run through with them then in in a fairly lengthy conversation. You know what they're doing well and where you know areas where they need to improve. And I think that's sort of building on the point that that you've mentioned and, and that Charlie mentioned about you know the the kind of supportive role we have in setting people up for success, I guess. Which, you know, and as you said, everybody I think um wants to do a good job, but sometimes um they just need a bit of help and support in terms of, you know, what they should be doing with things like their terms and their their reporting formats and conflicts of interest and all these areas that we look at and run through with them and and talk to them and and, and the feedback is generally very good you know people are are very happy that we've been able to spend time with them uh and and, and just to help them mm -hmm. through the uh the, the the red book which can sometimes seem a bit of a a bit of a maze i mean it's you know not <laughs> well it's a, easy it's a beast but it it needs to be and it should be and it's yes, you yeah. know, it's it's a a live working document isn't it ultimately yeah. it's not a this is how to do it and that's it it's got to be we've got to be proactive as to what's happening in markets across the world not just in the in the UK so perhaps I'm going to ask Sarah so one of the things that that I've come across as I've done this podcast and got to know more and more surveyors is that there's a high level of surveyors who are dyslexic and who struggle with all the reading and all the documents and and I'm not saying that they will necessarily fall foul more more than others but we've got to think about the challenges that someone who works for themselves and generally people with neurodiverse challenges do tend to end up working for themselves because it's the best kind of model for them but generally what kind of so when somebody is struggling 
I mean, is it a case that they come to you after there's been a problem for support or are they quite proactive and saying, okay, I need to follow rules. Can somebody help me navigate this? What typically happens? I would like to think most members would come to us first if they feel that the information is in a format that that isn't helpful to them. We are more than open to hearing from members and talking through with them other ways in which we can support them. Um, So I know that we are starting to do more and more webinars, for example, Mm. and the workshops as well that Charlie and Richard and the rest of the team are going to be doing, which might be a better format, like you say, than just reading text. And we'd encourage any member or firm to come to us if they just want a bit of extra help with understanding Mm. a rule or what they need to do or how they do it. Yeah, I guess it's being proactive. You know, this is if you've signed up to be an RSS member, the onus is on you to be proactive, to go and say, okay, well, what are the rules? What do I need to follow? And if I don't understand it, then I need to reach out and get some support on that. And you can do that with your peers to a degree, but you want to get it from the horse's mouth because every business is different. We have the Insights community, which Richard is, um, you lead on, I suppose, from the regulation point of view, don't you, Richard, in trying to put up their information and ways in which we can support our firms and members with the the requirements, with challenges that they may be facing, important updates. So that's another forum in which we're trying to get the message out there and to share the support i don't know if you, if you want to give a bit yeah more and we have a lot insight. of uh, we, we've got a lot of links links on there directly to the to the website to uh, to guidance and to template documents and we as sarah said we post uh, articles on there often often kind of quite short bite-sized articles about how to comply mm. with different areas of the uh, of the red book we will post webinars on there uh, and of course we'll answer questions so if a member has, has got a particular question or has read something that they're not sure about they can ask a question and uh, it will get answered and it will get answered by the right person fairly quickly actually so so that's a, a commitment we make to come back to people yeah and, and, and we encourage that, that. Because, Marion, coming back to your point, you know, we would much rather they didn't fear asking, oh, I'm not quite sure Mm. what I need to be doing here. Can you help me? Please don't fear that. We'd we'd much rather you came to us and asked for the help rather than something going wrong because you didn't seek the help at the outset. So I was just going to say that's absolutely right what Sarah says, because during the pandemic, it was actually a time when valuers were reaching out to us more than they've ever done before. But interestingly, the ones that made direct contact, i.e. they picked up the telephone rather than just, you know, emailing a generic mailbox, which I know is a bugbear as well. That's that's another a topic for another day. They were only the ones, the ones that were picking up the phone were only the ones who had ever had contact with regulation before. You know, the people who were phoning were people that I knew had been through the review process themselves or had had some interaction with us. And I think there is that element of fear there, you know, that they think, well, I haven't got anyone I can call. I haven't got anyone I can email. I I don't ask and put my head above the parapet because then they'll know that I am worried about this and I shouldn't be doing the job. And maybe they'll say to me, I shouldn't be doing this and I'm in the wrong job and I'm I'm just not going to stick my head above that parapet. But um, we are here, as Sarah said, we're here to help you. And I think it's a testament, I would hope, to the people that have done the reviews and the people within regulation at RICS, that these people who have had experience of us are confident to come back to us again. They're not frightened of us anymore. Now we're a known quantity, you know. So I was just going to add on the uh, RICS Insights community for those who don't know about it or haven't joined I'll pop a link in the show notes. It's on a platform called Yammer, which I think is a Microsoft uh, platform. And some surveyors have had difficulty joining if you use a work or business address. It's a quirk of the system. I had to join with my own private um, email. I haven't had any junk email or anything like that sent through. But you've got to be in the community to, you know, it's a closed platform for our ICS members. And if you want to find out this information, you've got to go and join it and you've got to go and be part of it. And it comes back to this responsibility as much as our ICS can, you know, share information out, you've actually got to go. It's a two-way thing, you know, and to be proactive about it. One of the things that members 
uh, of the Survey Hub community that, that I run have asked is, so what's this difference between regulation and representation? And I think a lot of members seem to think that RICS is a, a union in some kind of way. And it's not. It's about being a professional member. And I think I think years ago we used to be called professional members, but then at some point we're members. And I don't know whether that's muddied the water in some way. But some people seem to find that that a bit difficult to navigate. Well, it, it is something that we, we do here. As far as we're concerned, I guess, in, in regulation, we we um, get on with what we do, I suppose, in, in the way we do it. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, without, without that sort of influence from other, other areas and focus on, on, on what we need to be doing to help firms, uh, you know, to regulate firms and help them help them into into compliance and i guess your department's quite independent in lots mm. of ways yes yeah absolutely you know. so uh, you know the regulation team when we were in an office was 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 based up in birmingham rather than rather than in london and we were we were we sort of yeah very much run as a as a, as a separate team for that purpose and that's how we go about our day-to-day work i guess as as mm. w- with that feeling that we are doing it independently and and in the in the, in the best interests of the of the regulatory function, I guess. And actually, Sarah will remember this because she's been with us so long. But until about five years ago, I would have said the doors, you know, they're open plan offices in the main, you know, in London and Birmingham. But before we moved to Birmingham, we were in Coventry and the doors that were on the edge of the regulation department were locked. You know, no other member of um, no other member of staff could come into the regulation department you know we were very very separate in those you know physically separate mm. in those days and i mean the legacy of that continues you know we we have very little crossover so i mean of course because we're a member facing department we hear all the gripes that members have about things at RICS you know things like the website things like the portal and you know we we know <laughs> you know we are also members and we're also relying on these apps and resources but they are unfortunately completely out of our control and i think you know sometimes it's difficult to even track down who is responsible because we we just don't know that side of the organization we are kept totally totally separate and i think it's why actually we escaped the criticism in Alison Levitt's report, because we are totally independent. We are answerable to the Standards and Regulation Board, you know, and Dame Janet Paraskeva heads that up and she's totally independent. Mm. And um, she's really got her eye on things, you know, and we're answerable to the SRB. And um, that's the Standards and Regulation Board. That's the Standards and Regulation Board, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, we can, we can, say well we are although it it sounds strange doesn't it because we're under the RICS umbrella we are like a totally separate organization within an organization so the membership services don't overlap with us at all you know Mm -hmm. so when it comes to you know you've you've been watching and you've noticed a problem or there's been a referral from the investigations team or a, a you know a customer's reported somebody and you then get a, a case or job to look at what's the process what then happens it depends is the answer so we come out and see firms for a variety of reasons it can be because you're just in the control group and you're pulled out of the hat randomly It could be because we have had some intelligence about you. It could have been a complaint. As you say, it could have been something that's come through investigations. It could be a whistleblower. It could be a press article. We sometimes have to do reviews because we've seen something a bit questionable in the press because we do have teams that monitor publications in the press, you know, for for where RICS might pop up, you know, in in the words. Or it could be based on risk, which actually sounds a bit more serious than it is, because the way we assess risk is based on the information firms provide us in their annual return. So we'll ask you things like, you know, how many valuations do you do every year? How many valuers do you employ? 
you know, you put those two things together. And if they say they employ two valuers, but they do 10,000 valuations every year, alarm bells will ring. You know, Likewise, we ask what type of assets do you value and what are the purposes? And again, you know, you kind of put two and two together. So if, if one valuer is doing you know, 1,500 valuations every year and they do residential mortgage valuations, well, that's okay. But if all they do is international golf resorts, there is no way that valuer is doing 1,500 of those every year and doing them well. So that will ring an alarm bell, you know. Mm. So we will, depending on what we know about you or what we believe we know about you, because of course, sometimes we get information that isn't correct. We will contact you, contact the firm and say, you know, we want to come and do a review. If it has been a complaint or if it's an investigation, we tell them why we want to come and see them. You know, we're not, we don't keep that a secret from them. You know, we're open with them. And um, sometimes it could just be a conversation. You know, it can be a phone call and we set things straight and that's that done. Or sometimes we think that we want to come out and actually have a good look through the files. And that could either be because we want more information about you to satisfy ourselves or it could be because we think we think we actually know what you're doing and what the issue is here, but you would benefit from us coming and explaining how it should all look and how it should all be and the audit trail you should keep and how you should respond to a client if they're saying this to you and, you know, that sort of thing. So it isn't all about us gathering information. It's also about the firm benefiting or we believe the firm would benefit from us having that conversation with them. So... As Richard alluded to earlier, you know, we don't, we we have a sort of range of ways we can touch the firm, for want of a better word. So we have these member support visits and we also have the deeper dive regulatory review visits where we take a bigger sample of files from a bigger sample of valuers, you know, and look more deeply into the real detail of what they're doing. And, and how many, for context, how many of those do you do? Well, we used to... Before the pandemic, actually, it was a little while before the pandemic. It wasn't the pandemic that made us go remote. Probably in about mid-2018, we started to do more and more reviews off-site, you know, because travel costs are massive and going up all the time. So in the days when we did everything on-site, the team probably got through about 500 on-site reviews a year. And then maybe so, so is that 500 firms? Yes. Well, sometimes, yes. So if you're a regulated firm and you do valuation activity, then we will eventually come and see you for a visit. But we also have a lot of members, more so outside of the UK, although we do have members in the UK who are unsponsored valuers. So they're registered valuers who do not work for a regulated firm. So, for example, you know, the big accountancy firms employ registered valuers who are our members, but we don't regulate those accountancy firms. So we will see those people individually. So yeah, this was a mix of firms and unsponsored individuals we reviewed. So yeah, probably just under 500 firms a year. And then when we went remote, I think we would imagined in the beginning that that would be quicker, that we'd get through more firms if we were doing them from our desks. But actually, that's not the case, because, of course, when you do it remotely, you've got to ask the firm to upload their files. And, you know, if firms are still paper based, as many are, that's a lot of scanning and uploading and, you know, sole practitioners sometimes, you know, they're out on the road for two weeks and they're not about to take the time to upload all this stuff and scan it and put it into a secure data room. And, you know, we have IT issues and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So actually, the the time between notifying them that we want to review them and actually getting the files to review is much, much longer. It could be weeks between notifying them and getting the files. But of course, when you're on site, it's instant. It's there in the filing cabinet or there on the surveyor's computer. So we're actually doing far less remotely, but um, the member support visits are quicker, aren't they, Richard? They We can get through more of those in a week than we would a full deep dive regulatory review. We can, yeah. But nevertheless, I mean, we can't just 
we can't just go after the numbers. You know, it's got to be quality. It's got to be useful for the members and the firms. It's got to be useful for our ICS. So um, we've got to be quite careful about which type of review we opt for and be careful. We, we don't just want to get through 500 a year and never mind the cost. You know, we it's got to be meaningful. Yeah, I, yeah you're right. And But I guess there's that balance of we've got, what, 134,000 members ish globally you know and 500 doesn't sound a lot and so I think there's well this is only in valuation remember so we've also got the finance team that will do the client money and the DPB Mm. visits but we've only got 17,000 registered valuers and you know 11,000 of those are in the UK so uh, Richard's got to worry about those and the other 6,000 I'll worry about but um yeah, it, it is a low number. But of course, remember, we're getting the annual return every year. So they're being monitored all the time. And if something comes out of that, that means they need a visit, then fair enough. Mm-hmm. But, you know, low risk work, you know, firms that do the kind of work where nobody will ever challenge them. Nobody's going to lose their money. Nobody's making financial decisions based on their advice you know they can they don't need proactive visits certainly not as often you know can I ask do um do members have to report to you their claims yes okay so you could look if they've had a a wodge of claims in or high value then that's something that would would come into factor yes and something we look at as well when we when we do a when we do our uh, a visit, so we're looking at their complaints handling procedure. Have they got one? Which obviously they they must have under the rules of conduct. And, and and is it correct? Is it is it current? Is it? And we look at their complaints log. You know, are they maintaining a log? How many complaints have they had? So so again, as part of the uh, conversation, the initial conversation that we have with the uh, with, with the firm when we do these reviews. Um, we do we do look at that and we mm. we get an idea from talking to them you know the type of work they do and how much risk they pose and this and this is also why we're doing now more workshops and why we're focusing on on hopefully doing more of them moving forward because what we tend to find is that we are saying similar things to most of the people we review you know there are shortcomings in their terms of engagement or their report formats or you know they're not doing conflicts of interest checks properly and we're saying you know we find we're saying similar things to many members and so doing that in a workshop where you're talking suddenly to 15 different firms and and, and members rather than one is a, is a is a is an efficient way to get key messages across and and the workshops can are also very interactive which is great because people can ask questions and so that's another area of of, of so, focus that we're developing yeah I, th- I think they're a they're a great idea and again we'll put any links in the in the show note and blog so people can can access them anytime so you're looking at the you know whether people have done the conflicts of interest checks but also are you also looking at the process to make sure that it does happen it's sort of built in and it doesn't get missed or is it more the yes we are we're we're looking at both so what what is their process for doing it and equally and possibly more importantly are they recording it because that that can be a shortcoming people people uh yeah you know do conflicts checks but don't always record them properly we like to see them recorded there should be a file note of what what they've done and how they've done it so it's it's things like that that we are looking for because a big part of red book is demonstrating that you've followed red book you know it's not enough just to have complied with the rules you have to keep an audit trail you know it's it's a requirement within red book it's bps2 of red book so um yeah we're we're looking not just that they've done it but the evidence that they've done it as well you know their record keeping is a very very big part of it Mm. One of the things that I'm quite alive to is the fact that we've got lots of trainees, students out there who are working for various firms and, you know, are they being supported well enough? What they're being asked to do, some of them will go out on site. And it's hard for a firm, especially a a small firm, to cover the cost of having a a trainee and, you know, find ways to, to earn your keep. But then also... You know, so, so what they're doing, but then also when, you know, you've got somebody who's just qualified and they then start to take on quite high risk work, not necessarily on valuation. You know, I saw one the other day on LinkedIn where a surveyor had, had just got his ASOC and I think it's his first job was like a grade two listed mansion to which you'd think, you know, it'll take me three 
but a days to do that. And it's great to get those exciting properties. But is there any way from what you, you know, the work that you do, I mean, I appreciate it's it's difficult to manage and to make sure that people who are training or if you like L plates get the support because, you know, early on in your career, it's stressful to get that. You don't always have that, that peer support. And that's arguably sometimes where you like to get your first claims where you make those. I mean, I know for me, I had two claims, you know, my first one, I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. As a surveyor, mm. yeah. But my and my last one before I then went to work in a complaints team, I was just too busy. I had a, a lot on, and I my, my I wasn't paying attention to the job. But that first one I I got, I was devastated, and I didn't really understand it. And I but I can see that can see that happening with people putting, particularly as there's you know a big rush to get more people into the profession because there's a shortage, particularly of valuers. Yeah, I mean, once they've qualified, of course we would expect them to do even before they've qualified we would expect them to do what any member is expected to do and only work within that their area of competence you know we don't want them to go outside of their areas of expertise their geographic locus you know do what you're competent in doing but as part of our reviews one of the things we look at is the supervision measures the firm has in place for its more junior staff are there sign-off limits? You know, will your more junior staff only be able to value up to a certain level? Are there certain types of properties you wouldn't let them do? You know, how do you hold their hands? How do you countersign their work? How do you document that you've even checked their work? Because, you know, you see a lot of directors will sign off somebody else's valuation part, uh, report as the counter-signatory they might have just read the report or not even that sometimes, you know, and we want to see that if you're supervising someone, you really are supervising them every step of the way, you know, and that you've checked that they're not going to fall down a foxhole, you know, that, that they're going to be safe because I mean, ultimately it will be the firm's responsibility if they're a regulated firm. But I mean, those newly qualified people do have to, I mean, it's hard, isn't it, to push back on your boss? We've all been there, but they've got to. You know, if they're being put in a position that they're really uncomfortable with, we require them to say no to their boss. Mm. You know, it's not up for debate. You are the professional. You've signed up to this. You're qualified. You're now one of us. You've got to stay within your boundaries. You don't, you you don't become an experienced surveyor overnight, do you? No, exactly. It's just no. one of those. So, so yeah, you're absolutely right. You'd have to... Uh, take that responsibility and uh yeah push back if you weren't if you weren't comfortable or if you needed support and help on but we do look at the firms to make sure Mm. well to say make sure we try to check i mean obviously Mm. we can't be there all the time this is a snapshot in time Mm. but we look at their processes and we look at how those processes are documented to see how they're using their more junior staff what they're allowing them to do yeah Mm. that's that's reassuring so um so you you do the the visits. Um, you've you've talked about whether it's on site, whether it's remote. You know some of the the process that, that that happens. If there is a problem, what then happens? You know, is that where it then goes to some tribunal or and what support does do do surveyors have from that? Should they get solicitors or lawyers involved? Well, again, it it depends. <laughs> um, it, it depends on how bad it is because there are some areas of non-compliance where all they need is for someone to point it out, and then they go, "Oh, yes, sorry, right, I get it. I'll put that right," and you can absolutely trust them to put it right, and that's the end of that. A little bit more serious, actually, we would still say to them, "You know, well, it's your responsibility to put this right. We're going to come back and see you again in." three months or six months or whatever, or you need to go on a workshop or you need to do this particular CPD course, or you need to go on a secondment because you clearly got no idea what you're doing in this area, you know, that kind of thing. And of course it can go as Suki was telling you in your earlier podcast with her, it can sometimes go to investigations. Although actually the proportion of our findings that end up with investigations is very, very low you know, it's well under 20%. And even if it goes to investigations, all sometimes all it needs is for investigations to say, you know, well, you're a very naughty surveyor and we're not very pleased with you. And the surveyor will go, right, okay, well, I'll pull up my socks. Sorry, here's the proof. I've done what you told me I should do. And so, I mean, it's, it is less than 1%. 
that ends up at disciplinary panel. So, um, because as you say, nobody sets out in the morning to mm. do a bad job. They want to do the right thing. And it's rare for a surveyor to say to us, well, you know, I know you said that this is what you found, but you're wrong and I'm not going to change and I don't care what you say. That does sometimes happen and they do end up at disciplinary panel. But the vast, vast majority never get anywhere near to that far. And, you know, I've, as I said, I've been here five and a half years. And when I first started, I was notorious for making everyone a fail. I don't know whether I was just very harsh in those days or what. But even out of all those fail grades, only one ever, ever went to panel. And that was because they had said, we don't care what RICS says. We've been doing it this way for 40 years and we're not changing now. Well, that's obviously an unacceptable response from one of our members. It actually wasn't about their non-compliance. That wasn't why they ended up at panel. So, yeah, it's it's. You've got nothing. I mean, I say you've got nothing to fear. If you're trying your best, you have nothing to fear in that regard. You know, we will help you get it right. And again, with Red Book, Red Book isn't about valuation, really. It's about the administrative side of the job. You know, it's about the audit trail. It's about the documents and having all the right headings, you know, and making all the right disclosures to your clients. And that's really easy to put right. Even if your non-compliance is massive, it's really easy to put right. And we can help you do that. And a lot of surveyors talk about, or some of the ones that I've, I've come across talk about, well, you know, what's the point of regulation? You know, does it add value? Can I earn more money as a surveyor? And I would look at it a different way. You know, if you're marketing your business in the right way, then yes, I'm sure, yes, you can. But ultimately, well-run businesses are less likely to get complaints and claims. And if you do get them, they're certainly less likely to be more complex and straightforward, if you like. But it's about setting yourself up for success. And if there's a framework and guidance and a manual you can read, just like the highway code to navigate, you know, leaving your house in your in your car, then that will set you up for success. And so to view following the rules and, and regulation in that way actually gives you not just your clients reassurance, but it gives you comfort that you're putting yourself in the best position as a business owner and as a surveyor for success. And actually about small businesses, so people who do work for themselves, one, one man bands, can they be regulated? Should they be regulated? Because I come across that some that, that do, do and don't. Do you know if there's a particular uh, reason for that? Do you find that one-man bands don't for any particular reason? There is those firms that are mandatorily required to register and those that can opt in to be registered for regulation. So if a firm is providing surveying services to the public and they're based in the UK and 50% or more of the principals are qualified RICS members, then it's mandatory to become regulated by RICS. So, so that so would cover your sole traders. Got you. Yeah. So if you're working for a corporate, everyone's done everything for you in, in the past, you now want to set up by yourself you need to be regulated and you need to understand and, and get, get support. Okay. Yes. We do have a small business hub. On, yeah. On, so yeah. And I know there's quite a, a bit of work going on with that as well. So there is. Yeah, there is. That that, that's being revamped and uh, so hopefully that will be a, a better resource. Always keen to hear on what we could do differently or better. So if members and firms are finding there's a gap in our guidance, a gap in our standards, you know, or just a bit of clarity around a particular area that we're not providing already. We don't know unless you tell us. So, yeah. you know, we want to listen to what we can do. It's, it's a two-way street here. You know, we have to support and provide as much as possible. We're not here waiting to catch you out. We're here waiting to help you get it right in the first place and give you the tools you need to do that. So if we're not delivering in that area, then let us know and we'll look at how we can deliver better. Can I just take the opportunity to just um, remind members or let them know of the new rules of conduct that are coming in from the 1st of February uh, 2022? Again, we'll put the link on on your podcast here for you, but it's, we have produced, I say we, the royal we, not me, case studies, you know, ethics tree. There are webinars going on as well. So we're doing what we can to support 
the imp- implementation of the new rules. But again, if you've got any questions, please do ask. Great. Richard, Charlie, Sarah, it's been really good to talk to you this morning. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. And I know people listening will, will get a lot from this. So thank you. Thank you too. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show today. I really hope you enjoyed it. You can find the show notes and links to any guests and resources we've mentioned today on the website, lovesurveying.com. And don't forget to show your support by buying me a coffee or you can rate, review and follow the podcast on your usual podcast platform. It really does make a difference and helps spread the word and reach a wider audience of surveyors who just love what they do. See you next time.